It's not everyone's duty to change the world. Changing someone's life right in front of you is so cosmically significant. And if you overlook that, then you damage and disrespect the impact you've already had or are having. Finding words for things that are bothering me helps me. And I just believe that if something helps you, it probably helps someone else. And so tell people about it. The interesting, fascinating moment in time we're living in is that every human being, if you have a smartphone and internet access, can create a window into their life that is highly curated or just is what it is. And just me being myself, being an outdoorsy, gay, irreverent, but also like culturally Christian, Southern boy who spends most of his time in Los Angeles, like this combination of traits, whatever that cocktail mix, me just existing in that way, I get messages and emails all the time of mm. somebody that's like, just watching you live makes me think I can live. Mm. Like watching the way you talk to your friends makes me realize my friends don't talk to me like that. And maybe I should try to like find people who are more similar to me or whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's mm -hmm. it, There's so many unintended consequences to just living out loud. Yeah. And I mean, for me, they've been enormously positive. I'm Jedediah Jenkins, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, what's happening? How you doing? What's the word? I'm Rich Roll, so if you're looking for my podcast, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair, good to have you. My guest today is Jedediah Jenkins, back for his third turn on the RRP merry-go-round. What a beautiful and extraordinary human writer and storyteller this man is. Jed's books, To Shake the Sleeping Self, a coming-of-age memoir set against the backdrop of his 10,000-mile bike journey from Oregon to Patagonia, and his newest, which is called Like Streams to the Ocean, examines the things that make us who we are and the decisions that shape our lives. I think it's his best work to date. In any event, both of his books are New York Times bestsellers, which is not surprising because they are, in my opinion, masterworks, each of them. In addition to being my favorite, follow on Instagram, at Jedediah Jenkins, check it out. Jed is also the executive editor of Wilderness Magazine. His work has appeared in the Paris Review and Playboy. He's been covered by National Geographic. And our two previous conversations, episodes 186 and 395, really live and breathe among some of my very favorites, as does this one. And I think that's because Jed has a very curious and idiosyncratic lens on the human condition, as well as a distinctive, elegant and purposeful way of exploring and sharing the specifics of his internal landscape in a way that really elucidates the universal, that which we all share in a way that can't help but make you laugh, ponder your own life a little bit more deeply and perhaps leaving you feeling just a little bit less alone in the world, which is a good thing. I adore this man. This one is small talk free and it's all coming up in a few. But first, 
Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com/livingproof. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25.
So this is a conversation about kind of everything. We talk about the writing process, finding a voice, being an observer of life, leveraging the specific to connect with the universal. We discuss identity, friendship, family, love, work, specifically how to find meaning in our respective occupations. And what else? Uh, death, authenticity, community, finding common ground with people who see the world differently, you know, just the small stuff. Jedediah is one of my very favorite people. He's a brilliant conversationalist. I relish our talks and this one, not unsurprisingly, does not disappoint. So here we go. I mean, it's awesome to see you. And I was realizing that the full extent of our entire relationship is based on this, <laughs> you know? I know, and yet we go, go so deep together. <laughs> I know, and then we always depart with grand, you know, designs on like hanging out all the time and then that never happens. And you accuse me of living in Dubai. Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean- As an East Sider making East the Siders, it's just a lifestyle over there. I mean, when you live this far out, is it more of an understood burden that you're the one that goes or to your friends? A hundred percent. I mean, the, the consensus is you essentially live in Santa Barbara. And, right. and if you wanna see your friends, like you're the one who's gonna have to make the effort more than them because it's such a schlep. Or you plan out a dinner party way in advance. Right. And, right. Uh, and like hope there's not a pandemic. Right, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> like good luck with that right now. <laughs> so the sole extent of my social interaction, like everybody is either on Zoom or in the few rare and beautiful instances that I can cajole people like yourself to come here. Uh, to have even distanced real human interaction is a treasure. So how's I, it I been for so you? Well, I'm a double extrovert, as you know, right. and I Enneagram need- Enneagram seven. Enneagram seven, full on, like not built for a isolated pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but living in Los Angeles to the degree that I do, I feel very lucky that we live in a place with, you can be outside. Mm -hmm. And there's so many places to hike and walk. And I've been able to go on neighborhood walks with friends and things like that, uh, go to the beach and whatever it is, even go camping way out in the desert. And that's been a lifesaver just to have something on the horizon, yeah. like a camping trip in a month. For an Enneagram seven, we're always looking to, we just need the next adventure in the calendar to like be able to exist today, mm. which is probably a and you, you live, Do you still live with roommates? Yeah. You do, so you have a bubble of like totally. friends and stuff I've like that. I've never lived alone. I'm a full on grown adult man, never lived alone yeah. and I'm, Curious, I think if I am uncoupled when I enter my 40s, I have decided that that's something I wanna do, try living alone. Uh -huh. Even though I, it just feels like a performative gesture of experiment because <laughs> I don't want to yeah. and I love my roommates and I love coming home to, they're watching some show I've never heard of or they're making some new cocktail that they saw on TikTok. And I'm like, ooh, what's that? And then mm. there's something happening, which I enjoy the energy of that, as opposed to coming home and then I'm home. And then I'm like, hmm, I wonder what my friends are doing. Right. I guess I should reach out. And then if they're busy, then I'm like, well, I guess no one wants to hang out with me. Like I just can see myself going through a spiral. Well, there's a weird, <laughs> sort of cultural negative, you know, pejorative veneer over the idea of an adult living 
by himself or herself. And if you have roommates after a certain age, right. that's frowned upon, but we're genetically engineered to, you know, live as a village in a community of people. And my totally. favorite, you know, some of my most favorite memories are being in a dorm or living in a group house and why can't we do that for our whole lives? Why is that why is why would that be considered, you know, going awry as opposed to the preferred, you know, state of existence? I think and we've talked about this ad nauseum on this podcast, but I think I forget it. I don't even remember what we talked well, about. Well, but so just we in the sense where growing up evangelical Christian and then having my homosexuality like uproot or like cause the deconstruction of an entire worldview that I was raised in and taught this is how the world works. And then this one factor of my identity sort of like pulled the thread of the sweater mm -hmm. and started to unravel the the sturdiness of that worldview. That has like given me this like comfort in not doing what I'm supposed to do. Right, like, like, like being outside the paradigm. Yeah, like you should be married by this age, you shouldn't live or should live with roommates, you should do this. Like I just have exercise, I've exercised that identity muscle of being like, well, that's not what I wanna do, so I'm not gonna do it. Right. So as an Enneagram seven, I'm a, I'm a four with a wing of five. I'm still not sure what exactly that means, <laughs> but, <laughs> but as you seem like somebody who understands the Enneagram pretty well. Like how does a four slash five interact with a seven? Well, we tend to like each other because as far as I understand, um, when a seven, so my wing is a six, which is loyalty and following the rules, which would make sense because I'm fun, but I also wanted to be such a good Christian You're boy good that boy. I had my first yeah. kiss at 28. Right. It's like, I'm <laughs> I'm crazy, but at the same time, I didn't lose my virginity till I was 30. Uh -huh. So it's like, there's, <laughs> there's like aspects to my major number. Mm -hmm. So a four being, the individualist doesn't want to be put in a box. Like you find yourself to be profoundly unique. And so any like mm. categorization of you in a generality yeah. is offensive. And then a five is like insatiably curious about like the way things work. So <laughs> you being a successful podcaster where you dive into very complex nuanced issues with people in an intimate conversation mm. feels very four wing five. Yeah, and I, I like the one-on-one. -on -one. Like I'm I'm I get nervous and anxious around, you know, group settings and things like that. And, you know, I, I think I'm fundamentally an optimistic, somewhat joyful, but maybe traumatized <laughs> individual. But I like my alone time. Like I would have no problem being alone. I just spent essentially a month in Hawaii by myself and it was the greatest. Which is not a which is not an Enneagram seven no. trait at all. Well, when I say I like my alone time, I mean three hours. Right. Like, oh my God, I was alone. I went on a walk. I just thought about some things. And I'm recharged. Let's party. Uh -huh. is, it is interesting. I would suspect most writers though are not sevens. I think you're right. Yeah. I don't and my writing practices when I'm working on a book is I can really only focus for two to three hours a day like in, on uh -huh. one thing. Right. So I write, I'm freshest in the morning. I wake up and I wrote this book. I finished this book in February of 2020. So that's right when I turned it in and it was done, done, done. Uh -huh. And I was like free, the world shut Stopped. down. But I mean, 
<laughs> Luckily, it's not like yeah. I lost my job. I was like, mm. I was meant to be doing nothing that time. Right. So that's interesting. But in, in my normal world behavior, I wake up, I go to the coffee shop. I have to find a coffee shop that serves food, a full menu, because I'm gonna sit there for two meals. Mm -hmm. I have breakfast and then I sit there all the way through lunch. But and you have to be around other people in your solitary moment. The buzz of others. And, well, and also as a writer, I don't have like an office. Mm -hmm. And to separate work from home is like somehow psychologically, symbolically important to me to like go to work and then come home. Yeah. And so A, leaving my house is important to me and also the hum of others. Cause mm -hmm. I also don't have coworkers, mm -hmm. which I really miss from my days at Invisible Children and in, mm -hmm. in school, just having other people in common endeavor. I have my editor and my publicists and the people at the publisher, but they're right. all in New York right. and they're just an email relationship really. And so I miss that. So so going to a coffee shop, the barista knows what my order, knows mm, me, knows where I sit. It's very like, it's as close as I can get. And it's just a lovely lifestyle. I yeah. love it. It's pretty good. Well, this new book is fantastic. I loved it so much. And uh, all the praise that you're getting, I know it just made the New York Times bestseller list. It's unbelievable. And uh, it's just, there's something so specific about your style. I can't quite put my finger on it, but when I'm reading your writing, I always know that it's you. Like, do you have a sense of, of what that is? Like, could you define that? Or is that just, it's just such a natural extrapolation of who you are as a person that it's one and the same. Well, thank you for, being so kind to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do have, the, I have so many things I wanna say about it, but go ahead. <laughs> the only thing I know is that I write the way that I speak. And I don't labor over the crafting of a sentence. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not very precious. I labor over the crafting of my understanding of an idea. And so I try to write something out to the point where it makes sense to me. And so however my brain uses metaphor and whatever that is, once I've laid it out and I'm like, there it is, that's what I was trying to think about. And that makes me feel like I'm at least getting some sort of touch on the idea. Like I can finally, this gray fog in my mind, I can now touch it. There's something physical there. And so I've just been, it's one of those things I've been told that I have a writing voice. Mm. I don't know it, but it's funny when my editor or if I write something for a magazine or, or for my editor for the publisher, sometimes they'll reword something or send me back like some changes. Uh -huh. And the slightest change in the sentence, I'll be like, I would never say that. <laughs> yeah, you know right, it right, right away. You're like, right. that is not, uh -huh. I don't know if you've ever been like driving with someone in the passenger seat and you hand them your phone and you go, hey, can you text Sarah that it'll be, like I can't come right now, but I'll come tomorrow, whatever. And then they type it out. And then I say, let me see what you wrote. And it's like, <laughs> I would never, I would use an exclamation point, not a period. And my smiley faces do not have a nose. That's insane. Uh, it's like, you can right. immediately see that that's yeah. not how you type. Yeah. So it, it's more that, uh, it's not that you can define what it is other than 
what it's not, right? Like you, you, you can immediately identify what it's not. And I would say that it is true that it's about the idea that you're trying to present and you don't get overly caught up in the prose. The prose is uniquely yours, but it's not about the trappings of language because the way that you write is very, um, in a good way, like plain spoken. You mm. know, it's, it's not about big words or anything like that. It's about conveying an emotion or a feeling or an experience that is specifically yours. And I think, um, you know, the two things when I think about this book are, first of all, it's a, it's a masterclass in this precept of writing, which is you find the universal in the specific. Mm. And these are your experiences, your memories, you know, there are stories from your life and they're so specific to your experience. And yet within that, there's something about the way that you convey these ideas that makes them unbelievably like universal and, and, and such that the audience can really emotionally connect with them. Like our life experiences are very different, but when I read your writing, I'm, I, I feel less alone, you know, because you have such a, um, you're so in touch with your interior landscape and there's more, um, there's more that we share with that than what differentiates us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is exactly the reason why I wanted to be a writer because I loved nothing more than the feeling that writers gave me when I would read their books. And I read mostly whether it was straight dead men or black women or mm -hmm. I, these people that I would read who obviously have a different life experience than me to some degree. And I would just ache with being seen. And even where their lives diverged from mine, they had a way of pulling me into their experience where it was as if I was them. Mm. Because that's maybe the most important evolved characteristic of the human mind is the concept of, other self of empathy, of the idea that I can picture what it is like to be you. And that that is what creates community and charity and morality and everything is right. this idea of the, the concept of self. And it, that's really like the humming truth behind the concept of consciousness. Right. It's the right. like, what would it be like to be you? And if mm -hmm. that, if you can answer that question, then the thing might be conscious. Mm. Is that is that? Am I remembering that right? Because it's like yeah. I would never say, "What is it like to be a table?" You would be like, "It's like nothing. You you're a table. That doesn't mean anything." But if I said, "What's it like to be a dog?" You could kind of feel something there. Mm -hmm. You'd be like, "I can kind of feel like I know what my dog is thinking yeah. a little bit. Like squirrel food." lick me, I wanna lick you, right. <laughs> I got it, you know? And then uh -huh. as it goes up from there, but I feel like the best writers can make me feel what it is like to be them. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I learned it's, if I just tell a very specific story about my life and how it made me feel, a reader, their like act of empathizing with me pulls them in and they right. feel very much like they know me. Yeah. which is an interesting side effect of being a memoirist. I mean, you know this, you've mm -hmm. written extensively about your life. It's inviting someone into your story is such a unique, it's such a unique job because when people walk up to you and they say, I feel like I know you, they kind of do. They kind of do, yeah, 100% they do. And that's a, uh, 
there's a there's a vulnerability with that, but it also it's nice. I love it. it. it it's such a shortcut to being able to connect with people. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you read my books and then you still want to talk to me, then we right. probably would get along. But the but the 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 downside of that is that if someone is to write a critical review of your books, it's they're criticizing you. You know, so I <laughs> asked, opposed, you know what I mean? I asked because there's no Patchett, arm's length. I forget if I told you the story before. Forgive me if I did. Edit it out. But um, Anne Patchett is a very famous, fantastic novelist from. She lives in Nashville, and I've met her a few times. And we've had some great hangs. Uh-huh. She's just radiant. And I asked her, "Would you ever consider blurbing my book?" This was for to shake the sleeping yeah. self. And she said, "No, I will not." She goes, I do not blur memoirs because she goes, if I don't like it, then if I don't like a fictional story that you write, I can say why. I can Mm -hmm. say this story didn't land for me. Oh, I don't really connect with Somali pirates. I don't really know. But if she says your life story doesn't connect with me or bores me or that is such an indictment (laughs) of my idea. It's like, I so know. she goes, I just learned I do not blurb memoirs. Right. And I was right. like, that's a good rule. <laughs> yeah, that is. Well, the other thing is that, um, and then I'll get to my second big observation of your book. But the other thing is that there's this idea that, that and you see this in movies and in screenplays that you know, the protagonist or the character has to be somebody that we can all relate to. And my, my relationship with books and, and why I love reading memoirs is at odds with that. Like I wanna inhabit the interior experience of somebody who's lived a life, nothing like me. Mm. And within that, you know, I can find something to grab onto or identify with, but I'm not interested in somebody dumbing down their story so that it can be widely appealable. Like right. it, it, it is that it is that like fidelity to being super specific to your own experience that makes the book work or not. Well, you're a type of person because you've spent so much time examining your interior life and your own influences and desires, I think you're curious about expanding that self-knowledge through the human experience mapped onto other life experiences. A lot mm-hmm. of people, they haven't, they don't have the bandwidth to worry about someone else's lessons. They're still trying to figure out why am I sad? Why am I unhappy? And so the closer the story is to them, mm-hmm. that's like a step in the direction towards expanding those neurons of yeah. human understanding. For me, I'm like tired of thinking about myself. I wanna know something, I wanna know an experience so different than mine. And I think about, do you ever watch a movie that you feel like no one else saw and it just, and you didn't even know you liked it at the time, but it like haunts your mind for years. Mm-hmm. There is a movie, I forget which book I mentioned it in, but it's called Away From Her. And it is this movie about this old couple and the wife gets dementia, Alzheimer's, I don't know the difference. And she she begins and they're in love. They're like love story, married for 30 years, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. She begins to forget him. And it's his experience losing the love of his life, but she's right there. And then mm-hmm. she loses the ability to live at the house because he has to go to work or whatever. So that she has to go into a home and then he visits her. And then over the course of the movie, he'll visit her and she's scared of him because she doesn't know who he is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's this, 
heart-wrenching story of loss and like aging and all of these things I know nothing about, uh -huh. except that movie sits in my heart. It's weird because because of the power of storytelling, I feel like that could happen to me. And there's like some, I have some immune response to it now. Mm. It's almost like storytelling is the vaccine of the mind. It like primes your brain to be prepared for scenarios that haven't happened to you. Right, or you experienced that in a past life. Do you believe in past it's, lives? It's a, do I'm I need not, to believe not, in that? I'm, I'm ready. Not, <laughs> I'm not against believing in that. But me neither. I'll say that. I've like, I have friends who are V into that. Very, very, mm. very. And I'm not, I mean, energy cannot be created or destroyed. So it's like. Right. But the, I'm sure you've had those experiences where you've encountered something and it has, I mean, the, what, the story you just told is an example of that, like where it has an outsized impact on you given you know, what right. you would anticipate it would. Yeah, like I know? could have just seen that movie and forgotten about it. Right, and don't. so why is that so resonant for you? Mm. Well, maybe there's something there, Chad. I, don't I know. like that. But on that subject of you talking about, you know, the, the reader asking themselves the question, like, why am I sad? Your first book, uh, To Shake the Sleeping Self, it, it, in many ways, and tell me if I'm mischaracterizing this, but it's like a coming of age story set against this bike trip where you ride your bike from Oregon to Patagonia. And I knew, you know, before reading your book, like, oh, I know this next book it's kind of gonna be lifted from his blog posts and his Instagram posts. And, you know, by the way, you're my favorite storyteller on Instagram. I just, I love yeah. everything that you share there. You and Josh Brolin are my two, my two favorites. Oh my he's amazing, God. right? Oh my God, he's the when best When is he gonna follow. write a book? I know. It's incredible. I, when he shares a story, I read everything. He is wild on there. He, he surprises me I constantly. I it, love. It's I completely love. not what you think it's gonna be I every know. time. Right, and I'm like, where is this? The profundity of of his thought process is unbelievable, mixed with the playfulness of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and there's something you know, your what you share is different, but but there's a specific sensibility to it, I think, and 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 kind of having that understanding going into your next book, I'm like, I wonder, you know, is this just gonna be a hodgepodge of like Instagram mm -hmm, posts? Mm -hmm. But what it really is, and I'm interested if anybody else has has had this observation, this book is a Trojan horse because it's really a disguised self-help book shrouded in your personal stories and experiences. Mm. And it's kind of amazing because the other idea I thought I had thinking about what's Jed's second book gonna be about, it's like, how much life has this guy lived since his first book? Like, you Not know, like has he tapped out yet? Like, is yeah. there more in the well? And you know, I was delighted to find out there's a lot more in the well. And as a, you know, it's, it's not a self-help book, but it really is. And even though mm -hmm. the architecture and the way that you've laid it out, you know, categorically by going through, you know, ego and friendship and family and work and all these different categories, it lays out this framework for, you know, a young person or anybody who's asking themselves these questions about who am I? How you know? How do I fit in? Where do I belong? What is it that I'm here to express? Like, you speak to all of these things in you know, a, in, in with a with a confidence and a kind of um, uh, you know effervescence that is you know really connective. Like, I just loved it. 
Thank so, God. Yeah, it's great, man. Thank you. That's, I mean, the, the funny thing is, and the whole premise of my first book was, I wanna be a memoirist, my like heroes, like mm -hmm. whether it's Henry Miller or Donald, Donald Miller when I was younger, these people who were writing these books from their own personal experience. I was like, this is my dream to be able to do this. Like Joan Didion, Fran Lebowitz, mm -hmm. these people. And yet I, I'm, I was in my twenties when I had this realization, I was like, how embarrassing. Like, why would anyone listen to me? I just got here. Right. So then it was the idea <laughs> of the Benjamin Franklin quote, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. So that was mm -hmm. the like major impetus for going on a trip. And then, so then when my publisher was like, okay, let's, let's do another book. And I was like, well, I don't have a gimmick. Like, why are people gonna read this? And, but at the same time, I felt very affirmed. Well, okay, this is just an interesting journey of my life. So I gathered a readership of my live experience writing about my bike trip. Mm -hmm. Like tens of thousands of people started to care about what I was doing on my bike trip. When I finished the bike trip, I was completely prepared for them all to leave because it's over. Right. So the reason you're paying attention is now over. So leave, great. Uh -huh. And not only did they not leave, but the following like doubled and tripled. And I, I didn't, sometimes I would write about, what does it mean? What does Michael Jackson's musical legacy mean? Hmm, I can't stop thinking about this. I'm just gonna write about it because I have a captive audience, like uh -huh. maybe they'll hate me, maybe. Right. And things like that would you know, be spread all over the internet. And so what I slowly realized was, oh, okay. My imposter syndrome was telling me that the only reason they're here is the gimmick of an adventure. But actually the reason people are subscribing to the magazine of my Instagram and mm -hmm. the things I write is they're just interested in the angle with which I see the world. Yeah, Like the framing of an idea, not that I know what's what the truth is, it's not that I have answers, it's just I have reflections and responses to things. And for some reason, because it helps me to like finding words for things that are bothering me helps me. Mm -hmm. And I just believe that if something helps you, it probably helps someone else. And so tell people about it. Yeah, and you're working it out in real real time, not from a position of authority, but as somebody who's struggling just like everybody else and doing it in a very authentic way that, you know, engenders that kind of like kinship with the people that are following you. And I think there was a timing aspect of it as well, because if memory serves me, initially on Instagram, they would cap out like how many words you could make your caption. Like you couldn't write like, you know, right. a full blog post. And at some point they broadened that. And you were one of the first people who kind of used it as your personal blog. Like it was more just, you know, a one line caption. Well, and, and I used to like, roast oh, people for doing right. that. Yeah. When they first started it and they would yeah. post this long thing, I'm like, I'm not on Instagram to read, get this out of here. Uh -huh. I mean, and before the like, the algorithm, your friend would go to Paris and come back and post 42 pictures of the same right. cathedral. Bleed the feed. And so you're scrolling down and you're like, I'm furious that I am now <laughs> inside this person's camera roll. And uh -huh. they're just like in Paris, like get out of here. I'm here for a different experience. <laughs> but what I found was as I was on my trip, the longer the thing I would write, the more response. People mm -hmm. were like wanting to be on the trip with me. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, I think 
at least my life has very rarely been a strong decision against the current. It's always been like, is it called tacking when you say, oh, where you zigzag? It's like yeah. responding to the movement of the wind and the current and just kind of trying to make headway towards a life that I wanna lead, but really responding to the environment. And so, oh, hmm, people seem to like it if I write more, I'll write more. Oh, yeah. cool, okay, they like it if I write a lot more, okay? And then, oh, wow, they're still here. So yeah. I'll just keep thinking. And you know, I would say just as a as a fan that you know whether you're you know sharing you know you're doing an Instagram story of you and your mom Barb you know traveling through Europe or talking about you know whatever frivolous thing like the Britney documentary or something mm -hmm. like I'm just as interested in that as you you know riding to Patagonia because it is your it is your frame that's what I'm dialing that's what I'm tuning in for. Well, and I think the interesting, fascinating moment in time we're living in is that every human being, if you have a smartphone and internet access, can create a window into their life that is moderate or is highly curated or just is what it is. Mm -hmm. And that also is interesting. Like I, I know that just me being myself, what being an outdoorsy, gay, irreverent, but also like culturally Christian, Southern boy who spends most of his time in Los Angeles. Like this combination of traits for whatever, whatever that cocktail mix, me just existing in that way, I get messages and emails all the time of mm. somebody that's like, just watching you live makes me think I can live. Mm. Watching you laugh, like watching the way you talk to your friends makes me realize my friends don't talk to me like that. And I'd, maybe I should try to like find people who are more similar to me or whatever mm -hmm, it is. It's, mm -hmm. it, there's so many unintended consequences to just living out loud. Yeah. And I'm a, I mean, for me, they've been enormously positive. Right. When I think of your your work, I think, uh, and you mentioned Joan Didion, Fran Lebowitz. Did you watch the Fran Lebowitz of documentary? <laughs> and I'm devastated that they took, did you see the original one called Public Speaking? No, I went, but I did, I did go onto like a YouTube deep dive after <laughs> watching the documentary and just watched a ton of her stuff. So I don't understand why this is happening, but in 2010, Martin Scorsese made a documentary just like Pretend It's a City, but it was two hours long. And it was for HBO and it's called Public Speaking. And back mm. then I saw that and became friends. Like the one right. person in the world, I saw her walking down the street in New York five years ago and I about self-emulated. I was uh -huh. so overwhelmed <laughs> by the sight of her. Uh -huh. And of course I would never talk to her, but, and I went to see her speak when I was in Austin. I'm just love. And then they took the documentary away, which I don't know why. And then pretend it's a city, maybe it's because of, that because they're very yeah. similar. The structure is yeah. identical. Uh -huh. But so the, a lot of the things she says in public speaking have shaped so much of the way that I see the world. Right. Like she really brings the heat in that one. Yeah. And I wish it would return. So yeah. if I ever find it, I'm going to send you the link. It's cool. I loved it. Um, 
And I was delighted with just how in love Martin Scorsese is with her. You know, yes. like he just can't stop laughing the throughout the whole thing. And it's Very kind of sweet. flawed. It's like, how many times do we need to see her walking into the, you know, the the club? And right. you know, it's a little bit weirdly repetitive with her meandering through the mini New York City. Well, it's and when all Netflix that, asks for six <laughs> episodes, and he's right. like, "Well, I have." four episodes of content. And he's like, yeah. film more walking. And he just tees her up to do her thing and say the things that she says. I mean, the difference, if I was to draw a distinction between how I, how I perceive you and her, I mean, she's, you know, there's, there's a relish in her being contrarian mm. that isn't really kind of what you're about. Right. Um, but, uh, but she's so convicted in her opinions and her like her hand mannerisms and just her, just everything about her, you know, is, is kind of an, is, it's just amazing that she exists in the world and the world is better for it. Well, it's one of the, it's one of the things around comedy as a structure is so often flawed and a lot of comedians don't age well or their comedy doesn't age well because you realize they were punching down, not punching up. Mm -hmm. And she has just been really good about punching up her whole life. Mm -hmm. Like when she makes fun of something, it's either a structure or a person in power and, and not the easy jokes of right. people who can't defend themselves. And right. so I think that's why she's making political statements and punching in the direction that you should punch mm. if you're gonna swing. Yeah. I mean, the other influences on you clearly Cheryl Strayed and yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert. I know you, didn't you do like a panel with them? Maybe we talked about that last time. Well, I mean, I've I spoke at a conference with with Cheryl and she is just there's just it's like I was just as impacted by her book Tiny Beautiful Things as I was with Wild, which is so mm -hmm. interesting because this is similar in that structure of one is an adventure and well Tiny yeah. Beautiful Things I don't know if you've ever read it but I it's I haven't read that one. She has an advice blog she used to called Dear Sugar mm -hmm. and people would write in yeah, now it's a podcast. Yeah, of fantastic. And, but she, for years, they didn't know who she was, but she, they would write in and say, I mean, you know, I was abused, I had an abortion, I have guilt, I have shame, all these things. And then she would just write her responses mm -hmm. and they became very popular. And so she took those and put them in a book. And that was an inspiration for this book in a sense where it was small stories, but like they landed on me so hard and it was such a, it was an enjoyable reading experience because you could just sit down with your coffee and have a moment, like a encapsulated moment that morning uh -huh. that you had done something like reading a New Yorker article or Atlantic. It's like, yeah. I, I completed this moment and I feel good about my mm -hmm. day, which I wanted with this book to, you were able to have like small meals. Yeah, I liked how you, you talk about, um, Liz Gilbert as like this idol and how you you fantasize or imagine her, you know, in this perfect life where she's she's just sort of effortlessly, you know, <laughs> gliding through her house and dropping, you know, amazing advice on people and without a care in the world and it's all coming very easy. And of course she's a human being, but that is not, you know, that is not how you uh, you know, imagine her to be when you're kind of trying to channel that influence on your own work. And then turning like flipping the script and understanding that perhaps there's people that are looking at you in that in that same way. My friend Jackie Tone just had wore this shirt the other day that I immediately had to have and it just says remember when you wanted what you currently have. Hmm. And it just landed on me like 
wow, what an amazing thing to write on your mirror or think about every day. Yeah. Is remember when you wanted what you currently have. Or I remember hearing this pastor say that there's someone in a hospital bed right now begging and praying God to just be doing what you're doing right now. The mundane thing you're doing right now is their ultimate dream. Mm. And just like framing things like that are very powerful to me. And yeah, I I remember so clearly, wow, I wanna write a book. I wanna see it in a bookstore, wow, on a shelf. I want, and like for it to say New York Times bestseller on it wasn't even a thing. I don't even, cause I, I still don't really understand how that happens or what that is. So uh -huh. it's not a, I almost have no visceral response to that. It just was so beyond. I was just like, I wanna hold a thing that I wrote because my I love a book in my backpack like and flipping through it and the reverence with which I would like hold my first books and just, I would just flip the pages and like watch them uh -huh. fall. And I just amazed that that's all my brain in there. And it now, ha my agent was saying this yesterday. He was like, books have this effervescence of, of permanence, different than, it, like if you write an article on Medium, mm -hmm. great. But if you have a book that just feels like it's been placed in this longevity, it's sunk its roots into the earth and will be here for a mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. And that has weight and, yeah. and, and that, that is so true. And so even though I can logically understand that the difference between Elizabeth Gilbert and me is, I think she's a better writer and a better speaker, but I know that she's just a normal person and probably a great hang, but mm. there is really, I mean, anybody, I mean, literally anybody, no matter if you're Barack Obama, they're just people that have been put in these situations that are extraordinary. Yeah. And I find idolatry and like idolizing people to be a very young trait and I think we're probably evolved to be that way. You look up to a role model, to a mentor, and it's you, important because it like it gives it direction you to, to have, your life. Yeah, you can you can latch on to an aspiration, and it's embodied in somebody that allows you to visualize it and perhaps like map your own path forward. Those people are super important. Yeah, and that does for me. It has it has faded as I've gotten older. Just understanding more about the human experience and also achieving dreams and being like, mm -hmm. I mean, let me be very clear. I am a writer and I have the best life. I love it. I am so happy. I'm obsessed. I can't believe I get to do this uh -huh. as a career. It is everything I dreamed. I get to speak on stages. I have strangers writing me letters. I have strangers coming up to me and telling me that they came out of the closet because of my book or they understand their daughter or son better or they, quit their job and booked a trip to Angola. I don't know, mm. like incredible stories. What a privilege, what an honor, what a dream. And yet I'm still me. And sometimes I sprain my ankle and I'm like, why? And whatever it is, it's, you never stop being a human no matter what you achieve. Yeah, but on the subject of, of the t-shirt and, you know, remember when, you know, how does it go exactly? Like, remember when you wanted, you know, what, wanted you want, what you currently have. Um, I've heard you speak about the idea of of um, you know pursuing your passion and this 
sense that you have, like when you were working with invisible children, you were, you, you know, maybe it wasn't your dream, but that you loved it and you were making an impact with the work that you were doing and placing this idea of work and passion and all this pressure, I think that particularly young people feel like if they don't know what their passion is, that they feel somehow inadequate, like to have a broader, you know, lens on, on what that means and how you think about work. I really think that the, the idolatry around passion and, and feeling like your work completes you is really strange mm. and problematic. I, I mean, I all, I'm such a sucker for biology and anthropology and like the, the concept that we lived in tribes for a million years and then we discovered cities 10,000 years ago and it's like, the way we live now is so weird, strange to what our body is. And for a million years of our existence, you either caught an animal to eat it or grew, or you didn't even grow anything. Maybe you foraged some mushrooms and some berries, I don't know. And then you had babies and you like hid from animals and you'd like tried not to eat something that was poisonous. And so it wasn't like, hunting fulfilled your spiritual soul. It yeah. was that these things were very cause and effect. Um, there was clarity in the cause and effect. If you ran faster and longer than the gazelle, you got to eat it and now you're full. So the, the effort you put in had a reward. If you raise this child, then that child can not only love you and you love it, but then it can also help you hunt and it can help you farm and it can help you raise the other children. There was such a clarity. And I think as we stratified and expanded and built the concept of an economy and industrialized the world and this and that, and that linear relationship between cause and effect and reward was removed. Of course that creates a crisis in mental health. Right, it's a crisis of meaning. The more comfort and luxury and free time that we have, the more we're allowed to kind of indulge with you know, the interior life. And there's something about that that is aspirational. Like you, you wanna be engaged in that. You wanna be asking the big questions and wrestling with your place in the world and what does it all mean? And that's great. But at the same time, it creates, you know, it, it creates this sense of um, disengagement with the world or what's really important. Like it's not in its proper context, right? Like if yeah. you're not pursuing a career that, you know, you're waking up every morning, like, you know, doing jumping jacks cause you're so excited that somehow you're a failure or you're not doing it correctly. Yeah, and it, we have social media and algorithms and, you know, what we're fed on our devices every day that just foment that sense of less than. Well, and you have a lot of like, podcasters and books and like, here's how you go chase that dream and whatever. Right. I mean, even me and to shake the sleeping self, it's like yeah. quit your job and go bicycle to hello, <laughs> that's it. I mean, yeah. at the same time, the, the wrinkle in all of that is that's what I did. I felt a calling in my heart that I wanted to be a writer. And so I took a risk, quit my job and became one. And I really am that fulfilled, happy person doing their dream job. I, mm. I am the thing that I'm critiquing right now. And I'm saying that me by, by me doing it, it worked. And I'm the happiest person I've ever met. 
So take everything I say with a grain of salt, but, <laughs> but I do believe that sort of when you were saying about my experience in all of my 20s working at Invisible Children or going to law school, not knowing mm -hmm. what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. By the way, as an aside, the, the whole thing that you did on law school was so great. Like, <laughs> here's what happens when you go to law school and you kind of, as you know, you know, I went to law school too. Like, here's how it unfolds. I mean, that's exactly the way that it happens. And, you, you know, I was on the precipice of, you know, becoming that person and got out of it. I've seen so many people walk that path and become that person to the extent that at one point I thought, I want to put together like a keynote, like a like a speech, and just tour law schools, you know, and just get up there and go. Here's here's what's really going to happen when you graduate from here. Right, you, you, could, you get on this assembly yeah, line, right. and it's it's this like it's an entrapment that you that you've constantly told yourself you will not be entrapped by, and yet right. they just lead you down. You just further keep and moving further. the goalposts and yeah. making excuses for yourself, and you know, to sort of fill the gaps in your uh, you know, lack of fulfillment and what, what you're doing, you gird your life with all of these material possessions and you become indebted to them and your life becomes more and more complicated. And you, know, you ratchet up keeping up with the Joneses and then you're 50 years old and you're a senior partner at a firm and you're like, well, I guess in the next life. Right, and you don't know your kids or what right. they're into because you work all the time and then they're mad at you and you're <laughs> like, what I, look what I bought you. And they're like, we hate you. <laughs> and you're like, what? Um, <laughs> but, but so all that to say, it, I didn't know I had this like passionate calling to be a writer until I was close to 30. Mm. I thought I was burned by this idea because when I was a little kid, I saw Jurassic Park when I was 10 years old. And I was like, this is the best movie that's ever been made. And I am gonna dedicate my life to dinosaurs. And then I realized I have to become Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. I have to, I'm so obsessed. I, that, that was my first like true idol. And then I was obsessed with all his movies and James Cameron and George Lucas and that generation, obsessed. And I started telling people, oh, well, I'm going to become the next Steven Spielberg, so buckle up. And so all of middle school, high school, everyone knew this. Uh -huh. They were like, everyone was like, oh, Jed's gonna go off and make movies. He's gonna move to Hollywood. And I'm like, that's right, I am. Uh -huh. And to the, to the degree where when I graduated high school, teachers asked for my autograph. Right. <laughs> because they were like, wow, here he goes. He got into USC. But you know, props for the conviction. And I think it speaks to how powerful it is when you, when you kind of declare, this is who I am. And the world kind of coalesces around that idea. And they're like, yeah, people I guess he is gonna that. be that. Yes. I mean, there's also, the, there's also the tall poppy syndrome where people wanna cut you down for having a big dream, but for mm. whatever reason, I was encouraged. So I moved to LA and I go to my film classes and I realize- You're, you, you, go to, you go to Spielberg's film school. Yeah. Right, and, and you I, made that happen. Yes, but it was all rooted in this idea that I thought I knew that I was supposed to do that. And then I actually started doing it. And I realized not only is this horrible, that I will be horrible at this and I hate this. And, and I, I had this major in college, this major identity crisis of, I promised everyone I would do this thing and now I'm doing it or, or trying to do it. And now I don't wanna do it. Uh -huh. And so what do I do? And I, I mean, ultimately I just had to give up because I, I, I just knew I'd be terrible. But then I was this 
rudderless boat. I, my whole developing brain in adolescence had had this very bright North Star that was just now wiped blank. Mm. And so then I spent college undeclared, not knowing, finally declaring English. Then I went to law school because I was like, well, now I have no skills, except I know how to read a book. So I'm gonna go to law school. So I have like some tangible skill. And then I discover my friends have started this nonprofit and they need a lawyer. And I'm so like exhausted from working in the like legal jobs that I had in yeah. law school. I was like, I just need to be around a community of people doing something inspiring. So what, what it was, I was just kind of walking through do any door that was open that felt right at right. the moment. Right. From 19 to 27, I would have said, I don't know why I'm on this planet. I have no idea, you know? And then it was really the slow, what do you love and what loves you back? This idea that I started at Invisible Children writing a lot of the campaigns and then mm. being encouraged by them like, ooh, we like the way you said that. Will you, you come into this meeting and help us write this. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. And then that flowed into them like, we need you to be our head writer. And I'm like, really? They're like, we like the way you articulate. And so, and I loved that so much. It was sort of this ebb and flow of actually paying attention to the winds in the sails of my life of where the wind is moving and like use that to go forward. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like uncovering the writer inside me. And then once I started doing that and it, and it bore fruit, it made me feel very accomplished and it made me feel very worthy to be alive. And so if I really extrapolate what that means, it's not like I think everyone has some specific dream career. I think everybody, wants to do something that feels useful. Mm -hmm. And I found that for myself. But it's in the doing that you have that discovery and the tacking, like making little adjustments along the way that are based on external feedback that you're getting from others. Like, hey, you're pretty good at this and, and, and realizing, oh, I actually like that. And let me just maneuver, you know, what I'm doing a little bit in this direction until one day you're like, I guess I'm a writer. It kind of happened to you in the process of you just moving forward with your life, as opposed to declaring in middle school, like I'm gonna be X before <laughs> yeah. you even know what that yeah, means, right? Exactly. But not for nothing, I actually think you would be a very good filmmaker, good uh, <laughs> what director. What if I come back and I do that? Like, I mean, maybe what if not I like a Jurassic Park, like I see you more as like a Mike Nichols. Like you're somebody uh. who I, I'm certain would work very well with actors in an emotional setting and could make like a wonderful movie like that. Wow, well, see, yeah. <laughs> I mean, God knows I yeah. love the idea, so. Um, but back on this idea of, uh, of you know, like the pressure to find your passion or to have this career that's gonna, you know, be, be sort of, um, you know, big in the scheme of, of how culture perceives these things, you, you talk about, um, your friendship with Tom, right? And I can only assume this is Tom Shadyak. It is, it is right? Of course. of course it is. Yes. It's like, this is definitely Tom Shadyak. Yeah, yeah. And he has this great line where he tells you, uh, your generation has an idolatry of magnitude. And and that's probably one of my favorite lines in the whole book. So mm -hmm. let's spend it a few minutes life, talking yeah. about what that means. Well, he, I remember he originally said that talking about invisible children and he was, because we were at Invisible Children, not only were we trying to arrest Joseph Kony and end the longest running war in Central East Africa, but we also wanted to change the world. Mm -hmm. We wanted to bolster international human rights. We wanted, 
war crimes against children to be something that everyone on the planet cares about and rallies around. It was such this like giant thing and, and pinning it all on arresting Joseph Coney and seeing him tried before the ICC was such this like, if we haven't mm -hmm. done that, we have failed. Mm -hmm. And he would always say, he's such a mentor in our life. He's like, you have put thousands of kids through schools. You have built schools. You have awakened hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Western teenagers to international human rights, to caring about something outside their building and their small world. You have gotten bills passed through the Obama administration to help with the pursuit of these war criminals. You've done an... It, You've done so much and you can't see it because you've decided if you do not turn the world upside down and change it, then you have failed. And that robs you of both the stamina provided by incremental success mm -hmm. and also just the reality of understanding that it's not everyone's duty to change the world. Changing someone's life right in front of you or one child's life or five children's lives, whatever is, so cosmically significant. And if you overlook that, then you damage and disrespect the impact you've already had mm. or are having. And I think a lot of people, whether it's, I talk with my agent and my editor about this a lot because I get asked by people, how do I get published? How do I get noticed? How do I get an agent? And the, the question is, that my agent calls it the hidden desire behind the question. It's like, what, what is the spirit of your question? Because is it actually, how do I get validated mm -hmm. for my writing? And, and I need validation. He says, it's also the hidden desire in the question when someone says, how do you handle the critics? And that the hidden nature of that question is how do I, I really care what people think about my products so much so that I'm af I'm so afraid of putting it out there because what if someone doesn't like it and I need validation mm -hmm. for my work? And so there's just this like idea that if I'm not published and on a bookshelf, if I'm not this or that, if I haven't achieved A, B, C, D, or E, then I'm not a real blank. Right. And I think in the journey of figuring out what you're good at and what love, what you love and what loves you and what you're supposed to be doing and how you can be useful and helpful in this life is, is if you feel a pull towards something, no matter how big or small, then like in some way, try it. And that was my entire intention with writing to shake the sleeping self was, I don't know if I can write a book. I actually might be bad mm -hmm. and I might embarrass myself, but I'm willing to try and put it out there. And I'm so happy to self-publish because I just wanna hold it in my hands and know I did a thing. And right. then I can move on with my life and find some other job. Or if the wind doesn't tack in that direction, I'll tack the other way. Great, I can do that. But the writing was a compulsion. It was something that had to be birthed. You had to express it. There was a call to the doing of it. It wasn't about, can I get an agent or a book deal? It was about basically the process of 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 giving voice to this thing that was inside of you. Totally, the writing in and of itself is the thing I wanted to do because I had learned that when I would write something, originally I had a blog on Blogspot, uh -huh. which then became Tumblr and it was called The Water is Black, which I loved that title. 
which came from a poem about being gay and God hating me. And so I would write my thoughts about my like sexuality and Christianity on this blog, just so that, because they, when something would really bother me, this happens to me now, mm -hmm. like something will really eat up my mind, but I can't, I can feel the war of ideas in my head. And then it's like, I just need to go sit down and write about this and do some research and figure out what I think. Right, so it's the writing that gives you clarity on you know, what you actually believe about a specific thing. Well, I don't know if you go for a number of days without working out, your my body starts to like ache, hurt. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know if that's atrophy or just stiffness, but it's like, if I don't exercise, then my body bothers me. And so then I go sweat and I get the endorphins and I feel limber and gray. In the same way, if I don't like, if I'm absorbing the world and something's happening, something complex like like right now I'm fascinated by the concept of multiculturalism and assimilation into a nation. Right now with the, the whole conversation around France and what they're doing with so many mm -hmm. Muslim immigrants and how unlike America, which is famed for being a melting pot, France is like a really old country with like a very established multi-thousand year old traditional indigenous identity. And so them processing that is so short circuiting to my mind because I I see both sides of the argument. And I mean, it's obviously short circuiting lots of people's minds, uh -huh. but it like, so for example, I, I'm gonna eventually have to write this out even if it's just for me, because it's really, it's something I can't get a hold of. And it's like bothering me. So originally I would do that with my sexuality and my faith. And I would do it on this blog and one time, and I don't know why, but I just felt really fired up and I posted it on my Facebook. Mm -hmm. Just like, I don't know why I felt ready to do that. And I did. And it, and it was that where people, a lot of my friends read it and then they sent it to their friends and their friends of friends and strangers were messaging me saying, this was so helpful. And that, that was like some was moment in my bulb. life. right? where that felt really, where I did something that was good for me and I discovered it was useful for someone else. And that like really pulled me forward in loving that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing how powerful a small, seemingly small thing like that can be in giving you the courage, the gumption to push forward on something and kind of, uh, you know, broaden, the spectrum of what's possible for yourself. Cause in the moment, it's just, it's not a big deal. Like a couple other people read your thing and thought it was cool, but how meaningful that was. And even now you look, oh, you know, New York Times bestseller, but it's, I'm sure for you, it's the handwritten letters that you get in the mail from some kid in the South who feels alone. That's exactly how I feel. I, I remember, I forget if I write about this in like streams, but I remember realizing even before I had had a book out that I already had the very thing I dreamed. Like remember when you wanted what you currently have, mm -hmm. I had it, which was I get to write things that make me feel like I understand my own mind that then strangers respond to and say me too. And they, they, they take time out of their day to tell me what it means to them. 
this was such a, th that it lands on me so tenderly and means so much to me because I'll never forget when, and we talked about this on, on another podcast, but when we made Coney 2012 and it was like, everyone was loving it. And then there was the backlash and everyone was, was hating yeah, there was it. There's a whole lot of weirdness. That and that just getting like, happened. just getting so much hate mail, but then uh -huh. understanding that more people liked it that didn't like it, but the people that didn't like it were so loud and so hurting our feelings. And I remember thinking, why, why aren't more people encouraging us? And then at the time, my favorite thing in the world was Ira Glass and Jada Bumrod and Robert Krulwich. So like Radiolab and This American Life, where my all I did all day was listen to every episode and love them. And it never crossed my mind to write them an email and say, thank you. Mm. I never would have done that. And they're mm. literally, I'm Let a super a fan. a handwritten letter. Yeah, like I'm a super fan and they have no idea. Now, granted, they can see that someone listened, like one tick on a number in some right. spreadsheet, but like they have no idea. And so now when someone writes me to tell me, and this happens all the time, I always respond with, thank you for being the type of person that would take the time to tell me this. Cause uh -huh. you could have just not said that. How right. easy. You could have just liked that and been like, oh, mm, that was great. I've like never let, left a Yelp review. I've never left, but I don't review anything. When you were 10, you did write a letter to an animator. <sighs> Eric Goldberg. Right. That was one of those nudge moments, those little moments in your life that change your trajectory. Uh, Miles Adcox, who runs Onsite, the most incredible, mm. like, I don't even know what to call it, like retreat center for like self expansion and learning. He always says, he uses the boat analogy sort of like tacking where he's like, if, you, if you're crossing the Atlantic Ocean and you turn the boat one degree early on or whenever, like over the course of time yeah. is the difference between South Africa and Ireland, right. you know? Like you just go, <laughs> and then it's, uh -huh. and for me, I really do believe that was such a moment where I'll tell the story really quick. I was, this is, okay, the, the year before Jurassic Park, I was obsessed with, Aladdin, okay? This was a great time to be a kid, these uh -huh. movies. And I was obsessed with the genie and Robin Williams. And my mom, I mean, and I loved drawing, so I would draw the genie all the time. Mm -hmm. And my mom goes, you should write the animator a letter. And of course I knew the animator, everything about him. Cause I would go back then in the malls, maybe they still have these, the Disney store where right. it was like, fully virtual, uh, vertically integrated consumer world where you could just give all your money to Disney, which I'm sure you still can. <laughs> now more than ever. Now more than ever, exactly. Yeah. Star Wars, they actually take all my money, so <laughs> yeah. still. They own more now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would get these behind the scenes books of how they made Disney movies and I would learn all about these animators and how they draw. And then I would watch these on the Disney channel. I would watch them work. So I just, I thought Eric Goldberg was God because he could he created the genie he drew mm -hmm. this genie, and this is ninety two so we we didn't have the internet if we did it was the most rudimentary but I don't think we got the internet till ninety four or ninety five yeah and so somehow my mother said draw him a picture and I will find out where he is and I we will sell we will mail it to him and I was like mother you are so naive you know me at nine years old uh -huh. you can't just talk to these people. They are in Burbank, California, whatever that was. And <laughs> this magical yeah, wonderland, and Burbank. So, 
so somehow she got on the phone and figured out, I don't know, I don't know what she did, right. but she got an address and put it in the envelope and mailed it away. And I just, it, it wasn't even like waiting and checking the mail every day. I just thought it was like burning it, like, okay, mm -hmm. bye. And then however much time passed, I got the letter back and he drew me a picture, an original picture of the genie that said, yo, Jed, I ain't never had a friend like you. And wrote me this letter encouraging me to keep drawing and like chasing my dreams. And it just like whatever neural pathway that did in my brain to be like, there is no one you can't talk to. And there's like, no one is beyond reach. Like mm. it's fine. Everyone's right. a person like the, it just did something to my nine-year-old brain that I still have with me now where I am completely unafraid and of talking to anybody and I feel very natural in any space. But you know, of course, like this guy's not a household. This is not writing Steven Spielberg. Like he, he, it, was probably, it, was. it was probably very meaningful to him. I'm sure that guy, you know, as talented as he is, is toiling behind the scenes. He's not getting handwritten letters from anybody, right? right. So it was probably, a, you should have you, you should look him up. Is he still alive? Like yes. to try to find him. No, I, 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 someone <laughs> I think got me his email. I have to go back. It was like in a very busy time, but I, I posted about this story and someone goes, you know, he still works at Disney mm, or something. It's like, right. And here's his email. And I, I mean, even at 37 years old, I was like, <gasps> Eric Goldberg, I can't email him, I can't email him, but That's I really so do funny. want to send him a copy of the book. You, so. you, you have to do that, you have to. It changed my life. And I love how your mom took it upon herself to like figure it out, like what a beautiful thing. And you know, Barb is wonderful and, and complicated. And can we talk about her a little bit? I listened to the podcast that you did with her, which yeah. I thought was really A neat little addendum for the book. Yeah, I, I think that I did a podcast with my dad. I think everybody should do a podcast with at least one of their parents. There's something about the formality and the structure of it that lends itself to a kind of conversation that a child and a parent just ordinarily are unlikely to have. And it, 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 not to sh even share it with anybody, but just to like have it for posterity, I think I, is a cool thing. I think about my beloved Mimi, who I write about in this book, my grandmother, my mom's mom, was such an incredible person. And I don't have really her voice recorded almost anywhere. There's one, I have one video on an old Vimeo account where we were playing cards and I just like had gotten a digital camera somehow mm -hmm. and like uploaded it. And just to hear her say three words, like rockets me to this like nostalgic warmth and also melancholy of missing her. Mm -hmm. And, and if I had like a full on interview with her, I would just melt. I would listen to it all the time, but of course I don't. Yeah. And so I think that's such a great idea and so easy. You can do it on your phone. Right. I recorded that entire podcast with my mom on my phone. Oh, you did? Yeah. It sounded great. We both, we got, we laid on her bed and I put pillows in between us and I just set it right here and we like talked like this uh -huh. really close. <laughs> well, what I got out of it and what I think is instructive about it is that um, it was a beautiful example of how to dance with somebody who sees the world differently and do it with respect. Like clearly, you know, there's, you guys have gone through a lot and you have different worldviews, but there's, you know, there's a deep love there and how you try to find a way to establish that 
common ground is almost like a test case for this moment that we're in right now where we're seeing this breakdown in our ability to effectively communicate and we're become, you know, every issue is partisan and we're unable to kind of remember that we're all humans, you know, spinning around on this planet, you know, in in equal time. And I didn't know what to expect when I was listening to it, having some sense of of the background and you know and everything that you've kind of endured with her and and what happened when the first book came out and her reaction to, you know, reading early drafts of that, but I came away from that experience with with an understanding that like a you've done a lot of work to be able to you know bridge that gap and and you know kind of be there for her in a way that maybe without that growth you wouldn't be able to and just her deep love for you like that was the more surprising thing because i'd never heard her perspective on any of this before mhm that's that was also an ex- when i decided to do that um i wanted to give her the chance to really speak because her ultimate critique with the book, even though she came to love it, she, when she was reading the manuscript before anyone else had, she thought that I was mocking her mm-hmm. or making fun of her. Whereas my editor was so genius. He goes, ask her to go into all of your conversations where, where, you, where she feels like you're misrepresenting her words and have her write what she would really say. Mm-hmm which was such a genius thing because not only did it make it truer, it made it better because her perspective is real. And it's like, and like my, the way it made me feel doesn't change because her putting her true words in there are just more accurate to the way it makes me feel. But I just really wanted her to feel like she had her say. There's sort of the idea of memorializing a relationship by recording a podcast with a parent or a grandparent. I haven't landed on this idea, but I eventually want to do it in in some form, whether it's my next book or not, Mm -hmm. but to go on a road trip across America with my mom and record the whole thing. Right. And we interact with people of different faiths and political ideologies, and we both process it together. Because like you're saying, I think we are in this moment of like conversation crisis that I mean, I'm very progressive lefty. I, I mean, I'm centri- centrist left, but like I see the way the left dunks on the right mm-hmm. constantly and just dehumanizes them. And like, basically because they have they believe that their ideas are dangerous and dehumanizing, that they just dehumanize them to a degree that is hilarious because any psychologist, any person who understands human behavior knows the only thing you're doing is making them dig their heels in more and making them love someone like Donald Trump. That's the only, you are creating this. Right. And I I remember I saw this with my aunt. My aunt lives in rural Missouri and we've always like loved each other. She's an artist, she's like creative, gardening. And then I started when, when the rise of our last president started happening. And I started posting just like, oh, this is not good. I don't, this person is not good for America. I don't think. And she came at me with such rage, which we had only ever loved each other our whole life. And to the point where I had to like block her on Facebook Mm. because I was like, what is happening? It it was very strange to me where I'd never had someone that I liked out of nowhere attack me. 
and call me a liberal elite and a snowflake and a blinded this and a whatever. And I was like, what are these terms? What is happening? Mm. And it was this idea- You're blind to it, Jed, because you live in Hollywood now. Exactly. And I'm in, I am in a siloed media stream and, and so is she and so are so many people. And it's like, she was responding to a feeling that the left was just making fun of everyone else in America mm-hmm. and, and the coasts or whatever. And that is enraging. And so you just double down and you, you like, I'm just like, we cannot survive this as a culture or a country. I'm right now reading Jill Lepore's fantastic book, These Truths. And it's this incredibly sweeping overview of American history. And you realize that like, this is exactly what we've been doing the whole time is like figuring out how opposing ideas, like the Federalist Papers, they're all arguing the same things of like big government, small government, does it, does giving people money help them or does it make them lazy? Like everything we argue about, we've been arguing about. And- <laughs> But now everybody has a megaphone and um, we're in a, a culture where for whatever reason, like it's, it's become more difficult to hear or listen to each other. It's all about, you know, it's all about amplifying one's voice and being heard, but without the hearing. Well, there's, and it's also the structures of the, the way that these megaphones are built, it's, it actually doesn't help for me to give some long nuanced perspective in a post. Right. Uh, especially, especially in certain algorithmic social media platforms like Twitter or Facebook, where people that are not part of my community are able to see that. So if I tweet something, and somebody, strangers can now see that and respond to it. Whereas if I post something on Instagram, if you don't follow me, you're not gonna see it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a different energetic conversation, which is why I found myself writing on Instagram and trying to have more nuanced conversations on there. Cause I was like, I'm super down to be challenged, but there is a, there's cachet in Twitter or Facebook where I can write something really complex and nuanced. And then on Twitter, someone can pull one sentence out of that Mm -hmm. and like then dunk on me and like make some really hyperbolic statement about whatever. And then there, because they are so black and white and starkly bright in their language, that gets the attention and then like taints the entire conversation above it. It's just a different energy. That's why I don't, I don't really have conversations on the other platforms because I don't like the way it feels. I mean, you spend your time either in Los Angeles, but you spend a lot of time in in Tennessee. Yeah, a lot. Right? So you have your foot, you know, relatively firmly planted into, you know, very different culture. So you have a sense of this divide that is more boots on the ground than the average person. So, you know, as somebody who, who, you know, spends a lot of time thinking and writing about their perspective on things, like what is the path forward here? I mean, we can throw out perfunctory terms like, you know, we need to lead with curiosity and we need to, you know, be patient and it's about nuance and all of that, but like practicing that or, you know, like how do you transcend the bubble and, you know, uh, live in the experience of others so that, you know, we can heal some of these wounds. Cause I, I do despair about 
the future? Like, where is this headed if we don't course correct in some real fundamental ways? I actually thought that something like a pandemic would help. I right. remember when this it's first- made it worse. I remember when this happened, I go, oh my gosh, well, we're all gonna go through something together. Rally. Yeah. And this like, cause I remember one of my heroes, Jonathan Haidt talked, he, he's right. built his whole life studying mm -hmm. like the left right divide. And he his theory was unless aliens from another solar system invade us, we are not gonna get along anytime soon. And I was just like, oh God. And now I think if aliens came, it, we would turn it into some kind of weird partisan thing. Oh, totally. You it would know? be like, they're not really here. And then until you get zapped, then you're like, well, that was actually paid actors. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's no, there's no hope. But right. so, so to be honest, to answer your question, the only thing that made me remotely balanced and understanding is personal relationships and immersion with people that mm. believe things different than me. Mm -hmm. Like I went to my stepmom's neighborhood in middle Tennessee and there was a full on Trump parade this past fall. And it was the time of their lives. These people were so kind. It was not, it was not racially homogenous. There was like different, I mean, it was mostly white people, but it was, it was a very strange, jovial, non-redneck moment. And mm -hmm. I was just, I was like, wow, these people are fired up. And if you are in that, it's so interesting, if you are in that world and at these parades, you do kind of think, and you've, you never go to Los Angeles or Berkeley or whatever, you really do think everyone around you is voting for Trump. How could he not win by a landslide? Mm -hmm. Everyone you know voted for Trump. So how could he not win? And then when he says, I won by a landslide and they're trying to steal it from you, you're like, well, maybe he's not lying. Mm -hmm. And then Rudy Giuliani is up there sweating his face off saying <laughs> there, we got all the proof. It's a, because we're, if you don't have access to the other side and you don't engage with them personally, I don't know the way forward. Yeah. I, I truly, the thing, the thing is, I feel to some degree, I am an observational human, not a doctor. And so, and this has a lot to do with the fact that I think because of, because of realizing I was gay in my adolescence, my defense mechanism for that was disassociation. Right. I was floating above my own life mm -hmm. and just watching it curiously rather than feeling hurt by being called words and, whatever. And so I think that defense mechanism has influenced my entire life and become my career as a writer and yeah. observer. And I do feel like I observe humanity in the sense where humanity is an experiment of evolution that might not work. Like we, we might not be able to do this. And that's in my mind, fine. Right. Okay. Right. Like, right. We this had experiment quite the run. may come to an end, or we'll just invent some AI to be the next evolution of what we were meant to be. Yeah, I just I love humanity. I'm so glad we're here. I'm so I think it's very cool to be alive, but also I was not alive for a few billion years before I was, and I didn't seem to mind. So right. <laughs> if we go away and this yeah. is a failure, it's just like I really hope we don't. 
but mm. but there's just when you mix things when you throw things into the mix like humans are the human brain is pretty wired to like sway conservative or progressive just the way that it is i mean you look at almost every family and within a same cluster of children who grew up in the same house with the same parents they can be politically divergent and yeah. oftentimes there's one or more that are and you're like they're eating the same food they're in the same place how does this happen and it's just because we've evolved to do that. One is like scarcity and one is curiosity mm -hmm. and one is openness to experience and one is like preserving what the, the gains that we've made in the past. And these all have varying benefits. I mean, you think about the, the American ethos of individualism and liberty is something that we are so proud of, but it made us incredibly bad at responding to a pandemic. Right. Whereas China, which squashes dissent and potentially commits genocide on ethnic minorities, is completely homogenous in their messaging and whatever, and they lock that shit up. Right. And so if this pathogen was actually worse, let's say, let's say it was more like AIDS, where it actually lays dormant in you for six months or something, and then kills 30% of the population, or if it like AIDS was 100%. Uh, every American would be dead. Because if there was that incubation period, no one would yeah. believe it's real. And right. like Dr. Fauci would be like, we can detect it, we know it's real. And they'd be like, it wouldn't matter. Ain't nobody dead, yeah. this is fake. They're trying to control us. Yeah. And it's just like, and so you see how this experiment of humanity, you put moral judgments on the way people behave, which I think you should. It's like the pursuit of thriving, but there are different ways of existing. And in the experiment of, we don't know what the future holds, the fact that everyone does things a little differently and cultures are expressions of like that, sometimes one culture works better than another one at responding to a specific problem. Yeah. Yeah, the individualism that is, you know, part and parcel of our DNA as Americans is, is, is certainly aspirational, this idea that we can all, you know, kind of create our lives in the, in the vision that we would like in a perfect world. But it's, it's also, you know, it's shrouded in this patriotism, right? But that patriotism doesn't mean anything if we can't cohere as a nation when we're faced with a crisis. So right. we're seeing this fracture. And I think, you know, to speak to the solution, as long as the wealth gap continues to increase, it's, it, it seems hopeless in my mind. Like the more the haves get and the, and the less that the have nots are, are, you know, have access to, it's only gonna ratchet this whole thing up. And that doesn't bode well. I mean, that's well. the French Revolution, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It will, end in, it, it will end in some kind of similar cataclysm. And maybe we need that. I mean, that's the like yeah. brutality of human history. You look at, mm. it's just bloodbaths. I'm curious if there's certain aspects to our political culture that are encouraging to me, obviously, a capital insurrection is not encouraging, but a super divided government is interesting to me in terms of like the evolution of society because if 50, like our Senate is 50-50, right? right? And that's like, if you are debating over really complex problems that literally one out of every two people can disagree on, then the problem is, th then you're probably living in a pretty advanced society if 
we can live in the same world and two people in the same room can believe opposite about something. If it was, if the, if the room was literally on fire and your skin is burning, you're not gonna argue over the fire department. They're coming, that's a very clear, that is such a cause and effect problem with no gray area. But if you're talking about what makes the economy work, what rises people out of poverty, is it this or is it that? What is actually gonna change climate, the climate crisis if there is one or is this just the natural? You know, like those things are so complex and they're very serious mm -hmm. and may cause the downfall of our society. But in terms of, it's pretty remarkable that you can have like the leaders of the country divided down the middle. Yeah. That, that just means that society is now so complex that we we solved a lot of the most obvious problems. But that complexity leads to a certain paralysis when totally when government is divided to that extent. But then if is paralysis if okay if 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 it is divided to that extent, hopefully in a democracy even though ours is a little screwy, it doesn't necessarily represent that half the country believes this, but a, but a large amount of them believe mm -hmm. one way and a larger amount believe another. But if if it was less divided and yet there were that same division of beliefs in the country and they just like forced the other half of the country to be doing something they didn't wanna mm -hmm. do, that would lead to, I think, more insurrections and more. Well, I think that's a function of the 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 caliber and quality of those beliefs. Are those beliefs deeply held values or are they surface level beliefs about, you know, things more trivial? And when you get into a real differentiation of value systems, I think that's where it becomes, you know, very difficult to reproach. Well, I mean, and that's the genius behind lobbyists and marketing is if you make something like gay marriage, which the evangelicals in this country, it's like, if I get gay married over here, that doesn't affect your straight marriage and mm. your family. But then they they sell it as this like cancer that will erode all marriage. And it will not only that, but it will erode the sanctity of scripture, which you've mm -hmm. built your whole life mm -hmm. on. Like they give it the power to destroy everything else. And so they make it a symbol, this like seemingly small thing. And so any, that's what lobbyists do is they try to make it where, oh, if you take away the soybean subsidy, you actually destroy A, B, C, D, and E of yeah, every yeah. in every direction. Well, on the gay marriage thing, I mean, yeah, then, you know, culture shifts and people's perceptions. I mean, that, that you know, it was interesting to hear Fran Lebowitz talk about that. Cause she was like, that's never, you know, it's never gonna happen. Right. And she was as surprised as anybody that that actually like took place. I even think about, I mean, to bring it back to Britney Spears, <laughs> watching- <laughs> Of course. Well, watching that documentary was really- I watched it last night. Was really interesting to me because 2007, 2008 was not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And it was just open season to make fun of these women and to make fun of substance abuse and rehab and mental health. like dunking on them, slam dunking. And what's even interesting now is that made me think about Coney 2012 and my best friend, Jason Russell, having a mental health crisis in public and then having everyone make fun of him and South Park make a whole episode about him. And like, even now I feel like 
10 years later, that would be so unacceptable to like right. mock somebody having a mental health crisis like that. We even just have a different language around it that feels to look at the way that people spoke about that. Mm -hmm. And I remember because it happened to me in my community, I felt the claustrophobic trauma of, wow, people do not understand the gravity and realness of this and it's a joke to them, mm -hmm. which is certainly what Britney felt being like haunt, hunted and then mocked on national television. Yeah, I mean, it's so sad watching that and seeing what that young girl, you know, had to endure. It, it's just, it's heartbreaking to watch it. And to see like the one thing I didn't realize is like how deeply strange her Instagram is. And it's clearly oh. like somebody who's not as mentally fit as, as they could be. And I don't know whether they need a conservator. I mean, that's a whole other subject, but you know, this woman has endured a lot and it is interesting that it wasn't that long ago. And when you see those interviews, it's just, they don't age well. And now that's brought oh, up yeah. a broader issue about this. We're seeing like the Lindsay Lohan, you know, interviews yeah. and kind of how she, you know, was treated by the public and the whole, you know, those, those events coincided with the explosion of the paparazzi me media and all of those tabloid magazines that were profiting off of all of the schadenfreude. And it's, you know, it's, I'm glad that these documentaries exist now and that there is a kind of cultural agreement that that was not handled well. And we should have a more meaningful conversation about mental health and a recognition that these people are, are human beings with feelings just like everybody else. I really hope so. I feel like one of my favorite things about any documentary is when it expands my understanding and empathy for a situation. I just also watched the Tiger Woods documentary. Yeah, I saw that too. And it's, it's a similar story in And it's ways. like, even, it's so funny, like Fran Leibowitz being surprised about gay marriage and the Me Too movement. I, I hadn't realized until I watched the Tiger Woods documentary, I was sitting there with my roommate and he goes, he goes, okay, so he cheated on his wife. Isn't that private? Like, why do we care? And I, I hadn't even thought of that. I was like, you're right, it feels really, in invasive and violating to, for like me to have an opinion about his marriage. He's a golfer, he's not a marriage therapist. If my marriage therapist is cheating on mm. their spouse, well, that's the whole point of why I'm paying them. So that's relevant, but why? And I, rem I was raised in the South and in Christianity. And I remember as a kid, when Bill Clinton was being impeached, um, the progressive media being like, why do we care what he, what's going on in his marriage and mm -hmm. if he's being faithful to his wife? And my family was like, well, that impugns everything. If he's actually not honest in this way, then he's on, not honest in another thing. And so he must be impeached, which is hilarious that they voted for Donald Trump. But <laughs> it's just the way things change where I'm watching this Tiger documentary and I'm like, I don't think that we should be involved in that at all. And yet they're like selling these stories and he's losing endorsement deals. Mm -hmm. Who cares? Mm. Yeah, and the 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 kind of disturbing glee with which that uh, National Enquirer, right? The guy with the bow tie. Oh my gosh, how he's like, such a cartoon. How, how like sort of excited he was about being able to like uncover this. It and was like big just, game hunting for him. It's really, yeah, disturbing. I understand like humanizing gods you know, like trying to find them. I get that 
inclination, but it's just like. But to draw a parallel between between Tiger and, and Brittany, these are people who were foisted into the public eye at a very early age yeah. and were, you know, uh, subject to image crafting where a lot of interested parties who had a lot to gain financially through their success were heavily invested in kind of controlling their lives and the narrative around their lives. And part of that was this wholesome image, right? Uh, you know, yeah. with Brittany, at least in the early part of her career and Tiger just being this super clean cut guy mm-hmm. and something's got a crack, like humans yeah. aren't wired for that. And <laughs> at some point, you know, it's gonna go haywire and it does like every time. So whether it's shaving your head or escaping to Vegas, you know, people need an outlet. And what is your, how old are your kids? Uh, the boys are 25 and 24 and the girls are 17 and 13. Okay. What is it like raising a Gen Z? Because my friends who have kids who are like able to talk and like 10 or older, you ask them what a kid wants to be now and they say a YouTube star or Mm. a TikTok star. I'm like, whoa, that's what they're like. When it was my age, I wanted to be a marine biologist or, or Steven Spielberg. But so what is your, and I don't know your kids at all, but are they like, if they were like, I want to be TikTok famous, would you be like, go for it? Here's a camera, or would you be like, not till you're this age? What's your philosophy? I mean, on I would that? be, I would be very circumspect about that. And you know, my kids aren't necessarily a proxy for the average kid. I mean, my my older boys are the most analog people that I know. Like they really? they are rarely, you know, I mean, they they're on Reddit and they read stuff online, but they don't have social media presences at all. And they're artists and musicians, and they live in Echo Park. They're home for the pandemic, but they're you know trying to pursue a, a music career and are kind of immersed in that. Culture Do you see like a Luddite revolution amongst young yeah, people? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of the, I mean, you know, they're, they, they wanted to record their album analog and they listen to, wow. you know, albums and you know, it's like- but it's the ebb and flow it, of it humans. Is, you just yeah. respond to what was before you as like, I'm gonna it's do something different. It's a desire different. for something, you know, that's tactile and real. And yeah. they like read books, which is an act of revolution when you're in your twenties, you wow. know, in this age. And then my 17 year old is in, she's, she goes to a visual arts high school downtown and she's all about painting and um, she's got like a screen printing business. And, you know, so she's online, but it's mostly like Snapchat with her friends. Mm-hmm, she's not trying mm-hmm. to build a persona online. And then our youngest had a flirtation with TikTok. And there was a moment where she had like a really, a lot of people who were like watching her and it freaked her out and she deleted her account. Oh, it freaked her out. It yeah. didn't freak it was not, you yeah, she, out. She had the self-awareness to realize that it wasn't good for her. Wow. And I think there was some bullying involved in some you know, kind of weird negative feedback, but she also had a lot of people who were, who were kind of you know, watching her do her thing. And then, and she got rid of it on her own. And now she's like writing a book and writing poetry and doing other cool stuff. So. I don't know that that's the typical experience. And I would agree with you that there is a whole generation that aspires to be a quote, quote unquote influencer or a YouTuber or a TikToker. And that's what they're, you know, like, look, you know, my 13 year old doesn't even, I, don't, I would be surprised if she knew who Brad Pitt was, you know, yeah. but she knows who all these YouTubers are yeah. and that's what's meaningful and important. So that's a huge cultural shift. So those are the people that they're looking to for, you know, everything from, 
you know, how to stuff, like how do you make a cake or, you know, all the kind of YouTube stuff where you can learn stuff, you know, how do you take care of a snake to, you know, the vloggers and, you know, the people that are doing beauty tutorials and the like, like that, that is their culture. I wonder if I'm realizing as you're speaking, if there, if we're going to observe, if you are a kid now, you know that everything you do is documented online. I know some of the, the kids that I know and the younger people that I know, it is very normal for them to just delete old tweets and delete things and, and delete mm-hmm. everything after a little while, just so it doesn't just live online forever. Where when in me being Gen X millennial cusp, like an elder millennial, I have a lot of life, especially when we were using early social media where it didn't cross your mind that like, this embarrassing inappropriate picture now lives forever right. and 15 years can pass and it will resurface or whatever. Like that's maybe like, that is just a curse of this specific moment of generation, but the younger people know that that's just what happens. Like, Yeah, well, I think the distinction is that we're the only, I mean, I'm older than you, but when I went to college, there was no internet. You know, and thank God, <laughs> and that you know started to percolate up. I think, like you said, around '94 with email and the like. But you know, I am the last generation of of knowing of of being kind of adult enough to know what it's like to not live with the internet, and then you know, being in this place now where it's all about that. Whereas the you know Gen Z has never known anything different, so their relationship to privacy is extremely different. They don't calibrate it in yeah. the same way. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, dunking that goes on on younger generations by older people. But what I see is, you know, uh, such a greater receptivity and sensitivity to, um, to issues of disenfranchisement mm. um, and exposure a global exposure to things that are going on in the world and you know counter narratives to traditional notions of of history and politics that you know we just had our textbooks and that was the definitive oh. word on everything and there was no discussion that expanded outside of that because unless you went to the library and dusted off some weird book by some crazy professor you weren't going to get any other ideas i was so, 26 working at Invisible Children, surrounded by a bunch of activists and someone gave me A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn and I read, I read the part about dropping atomic bombs on Japan. I had never thought about the fact that we dropped atomic bombs on civilians, atomic bombs Mm. on families as anything but like, wow, World War II, what a time. Like I. America won World War II. <laughs> it, it never crossed my mind the like moral implications of that action until I was 26 years old. Because right. when when I was told about World War II, no one gave you a counter narrative at all of like, yeah, not that- I did I, read that book in college though. And I remember it blew my mind because yeah. it, it, it runs so counter to just what you absorb in high school. And you're just, you, you don't, you're not really raised to question anything. You're like, here's the thing, read this and memorize it and we'll test you on it. But it wasn't I mean, a that's discussion. the the flip side of that is without patriotism, without agreement, showing the flip side of every argument is very hard to create any kind of cohesion in society. Yeah. Which is the very thing we were talking about is hard for us to move forward right. when we all are skeptical about everyone else's ideas and we just don't have much in common. And except yeah. we like 
siphon ourselves into these other these communities of like-mindedness where you think everyone must mm. be like you and everyone outside of your community is an alien, which we're just becoming tribal again, which is how we started. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really, I love your reading and I like talking to you because you do, you know, you, you, you have such a reverence for um, your roots and the community that you came from, even though nobody would disparage you for saying, you know, showing at the hand and saying like, these are the people that bullied me who didn't understand me and they're in my rear view, but you go back and you love them and you understand them and you're able to communicate a compassion and an understanding of a culture that's different from your, your own. And I think that that's really powerful as this observer who can on some level like disassociate and, and look at things from 10,000 feet. Well, I think every defense and coping mechanism is an experiment in survival. And so some people, when they feel unsafe, they run away. When some people feel unsafe, they fight back. For me, my, for whatever reason, defense and coping mechanism was to disassociate and engage, like, and figure out, okay, you're a human, you're in the hallways in seventh grade and people are picking on you, making fun of your voice, making fun of your clothes. like. You can like rage against the machine or you can figure out why the machine works the way that it does and survive. And that was just the, the way that sounded best for me. Uh -huh. And then that percolated. And then I saw the fruit that it bears, which is the older I got. And then I had all these friends who are conservative Christian jocks and this and that mm. raised in Tennessee. Then they find out I'm gay. And then by through relationship with me, it transforms their understanding of what a gay person is because it's not what they were told at church or saw mm -hmm. on TV. So through that personal relationship and friendship, it like for the rest of their life, they had a different perspective, which mm -hmm. they wouldn't have had necessarily without me. Mm -hmm. And so I think that influenced the way that I see any meaningful change yeah. is through screaming at someone that you're wrong and shaming them. I mean, you just see it, it turns people sour and it turns people defensive and angry. And I don't know, I would be very curious to see a study on this of like how often shaming really works. I will say one thing that it sort of worked is growing up with no smoking commercials. Like, like if you smoke, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was like, Oh my God. Right. Like, so, I mean, but that's. Uh, it, it, I think that there there is a place for shame in some regard. I think it can be like, we're in a shameless society right now. Shame's out the window. And there is something to be said for that kind of like. It's oh, not, I think it's we're not in okay a hyper shame, do, oh, you shaming do? society but, online but, at but, least. But we have, you know, we have people in leadership positions who are utterly shameless mm -hmm. and people who are living their lives performatively in a shameless way mm. because that that is that satisfies the algorithms and you know becomes a way to enrich oneself. Mm. Yeah, I mean what what we have right now is just access to see the complexity of everything. So sure, we have very shameless politicians and shameless people in power, but then you have if you you have a minor player that posts an a dumb tweet and gets fired from their job and right, is like a different thing. Yeah, wiped yeah, yeah. out and yeah. is like, 
you know, they said something that is like insensitive or stupid, or they did something 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago that, and so that, and then they're piled on and the weaponization like, of shame to so it's like eradicate people. And I think the weaponization of shame to eradicate people is part of what gave us such hyper shameful politicians because they're actually people tired of that social immune response mm -hmm. respond and do the opposite, which is elevate somebody who just says F you to everybody. Yeah. They're like, yeah, finally someone's saying it. Yeah. And like, if enough of us are like, yeah, let him say it, then maybe they'll shut up and we'll show them who has power. Right. Maybe we should all go back and read the Scarlet Letter again. There's just, it's so funny to me when you read classic literature or you, you read American history, you realize how everything feels so new, but it's just, everything is a remix. I know. <laughs> which is a great YouTube series, by the um, way. Back to Barb for a second. When when listening to the the podcast with her, you know, and talking about the, you know, how do you um, reconcile, you know, your love with somebody who's living their life in a way that's difficult to understand? What was what I keyed in on with her is how she's put her faith in this position of intermediary. It's like she clearly, you know, struggles with you being gay because it's at odds with her faith. Um, but rather than um, castigate you or have judgment on that, she she puts God in, in between you and just says, "Well, you know, I I I believe that God has a plan for Jed, and that gives her comfort, right?" Yeah, Which I thought totally. was really interesting. I mean, you perfectly understand the situation, which is she loves me and knows that like God is more powerful than her, and that her job is to love me and not push me away and not push me away from God because she also feels like a representative of God's love. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's just such an interesting relationship because also her biggest fear kind of happened, which wasn't just that I'm gay. It's that the fear that she was sold, which is if you pick and choose what you want from the Bible, then that negates the whole damn thing. Uh -huh. Like if you can just decide that you're not gonna follow God's <laughs> words here, you do the other thing. Uh -huh. And what's funny is I was sold that, which kept me celibate and right. in the church for so long. But then once I started unraveling that sweater and I was like, well, why is this word, why did Paul write this? And why is this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy? And like, what? who wrote the Bible? And then I'm like, whoa, the, what, why is this interpolated mm -hmm. here and translated here? And What's the Council of Nicaea, and how did how come these people are deciding what goes in, and what about the the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospels? All of a sudden, I'm so deep. I'm like, well, if I had just been allowed to be gay, I would have never known any of this, and I would have just loved Jesus all my life and never asked all these questions. Yeah. But because this deep interwoven piece of my identity caused me to become hyper obsessed with knowing what's true, it unraveled the whole damn show. And now I can never go back. Right. I, I don't know. Never. I mean, God has a plan, right? But <laughs> right, right. Um, I love how you you characterize identity. I think this is a quote from the book: "The braided marriage of circumstance, ego, and soul." Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, we are where we came from. We are what we think we are, and mm -hmm. then how we feel about what we think we are, and and those like those, the tension between those things is this dance of, I mean, identity is almost like the Bible, which is if you 
look at the concept of your soul or the I, the, the ego, the who you are, you look at it too closely and it starts to disappear and unravel. Right. Like what, what made me want a breakfast burrito this morning? I don't know, <laughs> but that was me that wants it, but who wants it? Yeah. Like, what, what does that even mean? I so you can't to, look, can't look too close. <laughs> I wanted to um, but find I like to this. Look too close. Oh, here it is. Um, I thought this was so interesting because you know, these words, what do they even mean anymore? Authenticity right. and community. We love it's to like, bankrupt words yeah, by overuse. We, we be authentic and you know, like find your own community. And uh, they've been so commodified and overused that they've been drained of, of any kind of weight that they carried at once. And I, I love this passage, so I'm gonna just read it. The words authentic and community don't mean anything on their own. Some things are meant to be byproducts, not causes or aims. We are desperate for authenticity and community and in our haste, we mistake them for goals. But these things are like friendship, like flirting, like humor. If you talk about them, they retreat like a shadow in the light. You cannot discuss pheromones while flirting and expect your knees to keep touching under the table. Some things, some beautiful things are the smoke and not the fire. In the same way, you cannot will community into existence. If you gather people around you and squint and smile and say, we're such a community, how amazing are we? Watch your friends run. <laughs> I believe that's be so true. good, right? Well, and I mean, there was a season for a minute, I was like going to all these conferences and uh -huh. all these things. And that was just such the buzz of like building, everything was building a community. Every company was building a community. And I was just like, what are you talking about? What is this? And then I realized the best community I ever had was at Invisible Children. But we didn't try to build a community. We tried to end a war. Right. Like we had a very sharp idea of what to do and how to do it, which was through creative storytelling and inspiring the young people of the world. And that pointed, in, uh, that pointed desire and intention attracted types of people and like a, a, a diverse body of types of people into that mission. And then as we were all facing in the same direction, working towards something, you look to your left and your right and you're like, wow, well, this is dope. Like yeah. this feels really good to lean on each other, to use our skills in pursuit of the same common goal. That's community. But if you just all stand next to each other and talk to it's like, that's fine, it's great, but it's not gonna make you feel that thing that I felt at Invisible Children. Right, the idea that, that community is, is a function of an activity or a purpose, right? You talk about your, your trip down the Colorado River and how that bred community because it was an adventure, right? It was a, a collective that you know came closer together as a group of people because you were all doing one thing. This, you were, it was mission-based. Yeah, right? and I mean, there's, one of the reasons I love Fran Leibowitz so much is because she talks about how lazy she is and that one of the jobs of a writer is just to hang out. She's like, it's part of my job to just like smoke a cigarette and hang out and right. talk about nothing and not do anything. Cause I, it's the aggregate experience of collecting things to process. And so I do think about like a lot of my best friends that I would call my community are actually, we're just all doing different things. And then in that friendship, we don't have a common purpose. We just like hanging out and like brighten each other's days and, and, and that's fine. Uh -huh. But I would also say that's not, that is not nearly the same thing as like a cohesive, powerful community that changes your life. One is like a, a 
restful resource and like a respite and amusing. And one is just this energetic organism. And that is just a powerful feeling. Mm. I do think that, uh, that those conferences have their place though. Like I've met, like I met Tom Shadiak. At oh, one of me those too, I love them. And, and like, I just, I'm so delighted that like, I got to have an experience with him. And the other person that I met as a result of, you know, doing a lot of these kind of events that don't exist anymore because of the <laughs> pandemic is, uh, is I got to spend time with your friend, Ruthie, who's a big mm. part of this book. Truly, yeah, yeah. I think and her name's said, in there like 25 times. Right, and you, you say like, spending time with Ruthie is like a poem or a sermon, right? Well, so she, this is sort of what you were saying about experiencing reading a book or watching a good movie or whatever, you experience someone else's truth and life that is not your own. And that is interesting and edifying and valuable. We have enough in common. We think we like to say music, we like road trips, we laugh, but she has such a different life than me. Uh She is a six foot tall drink of water woman with nerve damage in her spine that causes her to have incredibly debilitating chronic pain for her whole life. And to the point where she lived in her bed for seven years on the maximum legal dose of fentanyl every single day. And that didn't even help. And so she weaned herself off and now just lives with it. And there's a, there is an access to truths that she has that I do not have. Mm-hmm. And through our friendship, I learned so much about so much and through, and she says that she learns through me, through whatever my life experiences are. And it just feels like this very healthy, educational, delightful dance that we have. Yeah, there's a, there's a weird alchemy between the two of you. And I mean, I think the greatest friendships in our lives, at least to me, have that. It's that mm-hmm. magical alchemy where the, whatever chemical they are and whatever chemical you are, when you pour those two things in the beaker, like light and smoke happens. Right. And it's just, that's a special combo. Yeah. Whereas I have other alchemies with other friends where it's a totally different experience, but to, equally as powerful to me. Yeah. You know, I think we all have that. Yeah, and you talk about how you're at a point in your life now where it's it's not about like making new friends, but it's about really honoring the friendships that you have and like, you know, tending to that to that garden and, you know, growing old together and and having your lives like be, you know, integrated to such an extent that, you know, you get the the richness of life as a result of those experiences. Um we gotta wrap this up in a few minutes. I have so many notes that I didn't get to, but one thing I do, I do wanna talk to I you about- the way we talk. Is, uh, yeah, like where did we even go today? I don't know. <laughs> but um, one thing I love is, is this idea, you talk about this in the, in the death part, like, um, and I've heard you talk about this, like how we, 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 you know, we, we scrub and whitewash death out of our experience. We all live in this kind of collective denial that somehow we're gonna sidestep this, this inevitability. Um, and how we just bury people in these boxes. And I've often thought like, I don't wanna be buried in a box. Like I wanna be buried in naturally in an organic garden. And I want like amazing 
plants to grow out of this. And I want all the people that I love to sit down and have an unbelievable meal and literally take my body into their bodies. Wow, that's Why a can't we idea. do this, right? But you would, there is a way to have like a natural burial, right? I heard you talk about this. I didn't know that this was a thing that you could legally do. Well, it's becoming, I think it's a movement. So there's like a friend of mine named John Christian helps run this thing called Larkspur. This is a farm outside of Nashville that this woman I think bequeathed to this organization that does natural burial. And you go and you, I think you can like pick out where you wanna be buried. And it's basically just a gorgeous farm with hiking trails and wildflowers and a creek and a barn and, uh-huh. and trails through it. And then they just take your body and put you in the dirt. Uh-huh. And then you just decompose and it's like, Amazing. And <laughs> to me, I'm like, that's exactly what I want. And I think a lot of a lot of environmentally conscious people, which hopefully that number is growing every day, they realized, okay, obviously a normal graveyard and a box and all that is very wasteful. Cremation is actually a huge carbon footprint. It takes a lot of energy to turn someone into an ashtray, like uh-huh. a lot. And so that's not actually very helpful either, but just putting your body in the dirt and feeding the soil and letting your nutrients disseminate into the ground is beautiful and fantastic. And I wanna feed a tree and an earthworm in the grass. I think that's so cool. (laughs) And I, so like, let me do that. And so this place called Larkspur is amazing. Mm. And I, I think I'm very hopeful that it becomes the norm. And I think it will, even like baby boomers, both of my parents are like not interested in, in the typical yeah. traditional burial. Like, That's no, I want to be cremated. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, let's let's close this down. I mean, where do you, what do you like? What is your when you think about like streams of the ocean? Um, I suspect that as a writer, you want you want the reader to have their own experience, and you don't want to taint or color that in any way. But if there is kind of an aspiration for what you want the reader to extract or get out of the experience of reading this book. Can you put words to that? Absolutely. So bring, to bring it back to my girl, Fran, Fran Leibowitz said in an interview this past summer, she was talking about how she's an excellent reader and she reads more books than anybody and has more books than anybody. And she said- That's why she can't move out of her apartment. Exactly, yeah. it's too many. She, she said that she doesn't read for plot or story, she doesn't care. And which made me la- uh-huh. howl laughing. And she goes, <laughs> I read for language. I read sentence by sentence and I love the flow of language and I like the way that it lands on my mind. I don't actually care if Sally slept with Jessica and then, oh no, there's a note under the, Mm. like who cares what happens? I wanna know how this language flows into my mind, which to me is also how I read. Like the most extravagant plot, I almost don't notice it. It's that if within this paragraph, did you make me feel some type of way or did I learn something with each bite? Mm. You know, it's it's almost like I wanna I wanna read and I wanna write the way that I eat, which is I wanna enjoy the whole process of eating, not just being nutritious and having a full stomach. I want everything that I experience with my mouth, each bite tastes good. And so what I hoped for this book was to convey what I love about reading, which is I'm going to pour my brain onto paper with the the things that when I was working out ideas that were confusing to me, once I got them in these words, I felt like I got to exhale. 
and I felt that sense of revelation and joy that comes with understanding something a little better. And that's my favorite thing to do mm -hmm. when I read. And so my hope is the way that I felt writing this book and the way that I feel when I read books that I love is what someone reading it would feel. Wow, beautifully put. Well, that was my experience reading it. So. God, uh, you're good to me. Yeah, I've got, I've got like so much love for you as a person, as an artist, as a, as a creative individual, you're a gift to the world. This book is, is really, um, it's special, man. So thank you for writing it. And I can't wait to see what you write next. Are you, are you well into the next thing? No, I'm now, mm. you, I can't really work on a book until I get over the hump of a book's release because yeah. I need to like talk about it and think about it. I can't be on to the next, but now I'm really processing what that's gonna be. And I really think it might involve a lot of barb. Which yeah, oh good. I hope so. Good, hope good, it good. Well, it's got to be challenging to try to release a book in the pandemic. You know, when you can and and as this is always hilarious to me. Like your your couch as a travel writer. Like I, I don't see you as a travel writer. I don't know why that's in your well because your my bio, first book was a travel thing, and I'd written for some of, magazines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm I. Early on in my career, I was trying to figure out what am I, and so it's like uh, you, sometimes you kind of have to either call call it forward or look back at a body of work and say, "Oh, that's what you are." Like, are you an essayist? Are you a memoirist? Who knows? I just mm -hmm. write things down. Right. I think you've <laughs> transcended travel writer, though. Um, cool. And also, uh, I wanted to point out that that you know Ruthie's book came out. It was the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. Um, poor woman. Oh you know, my at god! At the beginning, when nobody knew what was going on, such an engaged she wrote person. this amazing she, book, and yeah. and uh, I just I didn't know. Like I wanted to have her on the podcast, but I wanted to do it in person, but it wasn't safe. And then like that moment passed, but like I really want to have Ruthie come on and, and share her story. I think it's oh, really powerful. She so. would love that. Yeah, and cool. It would be great. And her book is fantastic and mm. profound. Mm -hmm. Cool. So like Streams of the Ocean, you can find it at fine booksellers everywhere. I suspect Jed would like you to purchase it at an independent bookseller <laughs> if possible. Um, yes, definitely check them out at, uh, on Instagram at Jedediah Jenkins and uh, fall in love with his writing like I have and come back and talk to me whenever you want. It is my favorite thing cool. I could Literally, if this podcast was like nine hours long, I would just <laughs> need like throat coat day. tea and we just go all nighters. Right. I, I have no doubt that you would never run out of things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Love you. You're the best. Thanks. Love you too. Peace. Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. 
I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.